0: Open your Bible with me, if you would, to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the first book after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, the first book of the historical books. And I'm really excited about a series that we're beginning this morning through the book of Joshua, because have you ever felt like there was supposed to be more to your Christian faith, more to your Christian experience than what you're realizing. For example, you're like, I get it. I mean, praise God, Jesus saved me from the penalty of sin and death. But I feel like there's more designed for me, more planned for me than my present reality. I mean, I get it. I'm grateful that Jesus saved me from separation from God and an eternity separated from God, but I feel that I'm supposed to be saved for more than what I'm realizing. I, I'm grateful for all that the Lord saved me from, but I feel that there is more that I'm supposed to be saved for. If you've ever felt that, then you can relate with an entire generation of the Israelites that preceded the leadership of Joshua. Because God delivered them from Egypt, and he delivered them for the promised land. But they never realized the blessing that they were delivered for. And so the book of Joshua is about an entire generation dying off so that Moses' successor, Joshua, can take the reins of leadership and lead this new generation into all that God blessed them for. You see, God never simply delivers us from something old. He always delivers us for something new. We're not just saved from something. We are saved for something. And I believe that you're going to be greatly encouraged to enter into all that God has delivered you, not only from, but delivered you for, to experience as a daily reality not only all that you were saved from, but what you were saved for. So let's look at Joshua. This morning uh, before the service, Cassidy and I were trying to connect uh, to have a little pre-service meeting, and uh, she was looking for me, I was looking for her in a 55,000 square foot building with four different floors. So we never quite connected until right before the service back at the sound booth. And in the same way, God's blessings are chasing you down. And you may be looking for God's blessings, but you haven't been able to connect with them yet. Well, my prayer is that this morning you will encounter God's blessings and begin realizing all that you are saved for. You see, the Christian life isn't simply about a list of things that we're not supposed to do anymore. It is a wealth of spiritual blessings and riches in the heavenly realms that is to be characteristic of our present reality. All day, every day, the moment we wake up, throughout the day, it's not that you're just saved from something, you are saved for something, it's not that you're just not supposed to do a whole bunch of stuff, you are to experience a whole bunch of blessing. Amen, Crystal. Yeah, let's put our hands together and praise Jesus. <laughs> the book of Joshua. So first of all, let's look at the context, and we're going to have a little historical background. And then we're going to look at the covenant that God made. God is a promise maker, God is a promise keeper. We'll start out by looking at the context of Joshua, then we'll look at the, at the covenant that God made with His people. And even when God's people were faithless, God remained faithful. And God has a covenant with you through Christ, and in this covenant there are more blessings than you could ever imagine. After we look at the context of Joshua, and then we look at the covenant that God made with His people and kept with His people, even when they were faithless, let's look at the condition to enter into this covenant. And it's the same condition that we have today. Now, there's no condition to being heaven-bound. We are saved by grace through faith. We trust in the completed and sufficient work of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross, and we are heaven-bound. But there are conditions to enter into and experience the fullness of what God has for us on a daily basis. So after we look at the condition that Joshua and the Israelites had to meet in order to enter into the covenant that God made with His people, then we're going to look at the crossroad. They were at a point of decision, and it's the same crossroad that's before us today. And then what's really exciting is we're going to look at the New Testament counterpart to the book of Joshua the New Testament counterpart to the book of Joshua is the book of Ephesians. So to really get the most out of our experience as we walk through the book of Ephesians, I want to encourage you to go to deeper. Uh, Luke, who stood up here earlier, teaches a midweek Bible study, Wednesdays at 6, and right now deeper is going through the book of Ephesians. As the book of Joshua empowers and equips the Israelites through the book of Joshua, we see that they equip the Israelites to enter into the land that was promised to them. So it is in the book of Ephesians. God unpacks our promised land. God unpacks all the spiritual blessings that are to be ours on a daily basis, and in the book of Ephesians, we are equipped to enter into that by suiting up in spiritual warfare. The book of Joshua is a book of wars. It's a book of battles because they had to fight. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. It was their land. And then he said, now go fight for it. Is that a contradiction? It's their blessing, but they have to go fight for it? It's not a contradiction at all. They had to lay hold of it by faith. You see, they weren't fighting for victory. They were fighting from a position of victory. It was their land. They just had to have the courage to walk in and lay hold of the blessing that was theirs. So, let's pick up with the context of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. You know, most commentaries believe that the very first word of Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 should not be after, it should be and. And. And after the death of Moses, because this is a direct continuation from Deuteronomy. So let's flip back one page, and you're in the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, chapter 34. Most believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, all the way up to his death. Either Joshua completed the work of the writing of the Pentateuch, or prophetically, Moses wrote about his death and burial, and most commentaries believe that Joshua wrote the book of Joshua, but there's some debate about that. But let's look at the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, and let's pick up in verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded. We are talking about two absolute giants in Israel's history, two giants of prophecy and scripture, two leadership giants through the corridor of history, Moses and Joshua. And I want you guys to understand something. When Moses, the greatest leader perhaps in the corridor of history, when Moses took up the mantle of leadership to go into Egypt... And stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He was 80 years old. So don't you think that God doesn't have plans for you, don't you think that your best years are behind you, or God can't use you anymore, or you've made too many mistakes, you've fallen too many times, your heart has experienced too much disappointment, or too much sorrow. Moses didn't begin being the instrument of God until he was 80, and he led for 40 years, that's right, until he was 120. So don't you tell me, oh, I'm just getting so, my back hurts, I don't know that God can use me anymore. I have to wear glasses, I, or I'm like me, I have to get bigger and bigger Bibles, so I don't have to wear glasses. No, no, God's got a plan for you. God still has a plan for you. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. You want to know how old Joshua is right here when he begins leading the Israelites after Moses passes off the scene? Joshua is 80 years old. So again, don't you tell me that your best is behind you or God can't use you any longer. So after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, let's look at some context in relation to Joshua. First of all, Joshua was a slave in Egypt. At the time that Moses, in the book of Exodus, saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he killed the Egyptian, Moses was 40 years old. Joshua was about a baby right then. And so Joshua grew up in slavery. But not only was Joshua a slave, Joshua was a witness to the power of God that rested upon Moses. Forty years later, now that Moses is 80 and now that Joshua is 40, when the power of God rested upon Moses through the ten plagues to deliver uh, the Israelites from Egypt with incredible power. But you see, Joshua had a unique perspective. Joshua had a unique heart, and I pray that you share this perspective and heart. Joshua's perspective was that God did this, and I'm grateful for it. Joshua's entire generation took for granted God's blessings, but not Joshua. He was always grateful for it. Not only was Joshua grateful for God's blessings in delivering them, Joshua worshipped God for it. His entire generation, they grumbled and they wanted to go right back into the bondage they were delivered from, but Joshua was grateful and Joshua worshipped. Joshua was also unique because he didn't believe That God's power flowing through Moses to deliver them from Egypt was an isolated experience reserved for that moment and that time. Joshua understood the character of God, that God is immutable and unchangeable. And that was not an isolated incident that God did then. That was a living and breathing experience that God will do every day in his life if he simply walks in fellowship with his God of glory and power. So Joshua grew up a slave. Not only that, at about 40 years of age, Joshua was an eyewitness to the power of God. And then as the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, we see the first signs of Moses' I'm sorry, Joshua's leadership, and that's that he was a soldier. In Exodus chapter 17, there's a very well-known battle when Moses is standing on the cliff and the Israelites are battling the Amalekites and Aaron and her hold up Moses' arms as Moses intercedes and as long as Moses is interceding with his arms outstretched and the Israelites are winning and so they held up his arms until the Israelites were victorious. The general on the battlefield that day was none other than Joshua. He was a skilled military man. He was a skilled general. And then as they continue to wander throughout the wilderness, we see that Joshua was also the servant of Moses. Joshua is referred to throughout the Pentateuch in the wandering years as the servant of Moses. And so as Moses is communing with God on the mountain and fellowshipping with God as a friend talks with a friend face to face, there's Joshua, his right-hand man, watching this. And we see also that Joshua was a worshiper. And this is the heart of Joshua's leadership. He was a worshiper. In Exodus chapter 33, we see that Moses would pitch a tent off into the horizon. The whole encampment of Israel could see Moses's tent. And the cloud that represented the presence of God would rest at the front of Moses' tent, and there Moses would worship God. And as that was happening, Joshua was basically Moses' right-hand man at his tent, sort of being Moses' bodyguard and assistant. And when the presence of the Lord would depart, Moses would enter back into camp. But we see something really unique and Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, even when the spirit of the Lord, the presence of the Lord departed, and Moses summed up his worship and he went back in to commune with the people, Joshua, we read, stayed at the tent. He had a heart for worship. And then we see Moses's, I'm sorry, and then we see Joshua's leadership really surface in Numbers 13. You see, it should have been a matter of a handful of days when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt until they walked into their promised land. It should have been a journey that lasted a handful of days. I mean, we're talking they were journeying from Fort Worth to to Austin. It, It was not that long of a journey. It should have been a handful of days in terms of the proximity, but it took them 40 years And an entire generation had to die in the wilderness because of this event in Numbers 13. They were at the border of the land that God promised them. God said, it's a fruitful land. It's a blessed land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses sent 12 spies into the land. A leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of the leaders was Joshua. And they went in and they surveyed the land and after 40 days they returned and they gave a report and they said, yes, it's a good land, it's a spacious land, yeah, there's all kinds of blessings, but there's giants in there fortifying the land, defending the land. Ten of the spies said, there is no way that we're going to be able to take the land. They're too well fortified. Their military is, is, the, the technology is too high. They're too strong, they're too big, there's no way that we can take them. They're too well organized. Their walls are, are too fortified. We'll get slaughtered if we go in there. And they began cursing and grumbling at Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt? It would have been better to die in Egypt than to be killed by a sword out here in the desert. Let us just go back to Egypt. But two spies, Caleb, a fiery old-timer, and Joshua, they said, no, 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 no. Yes, yes, it's, it's true that that it's well-fortified, and they have a state-of-the-art military, and the walls are strong, and they're well-organized. Just this, yes, yes. that's all true, but you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the giants. We're looking at God. God promised the land. Remember what God did in Egypt. Remember, remember His power. He did it then. He will do it now. Let's just focus on God. Yes, we may look like grasshoppers compared to those giants, but those giants look like grasshoppers compared to our God. Let's go take the land. But then the ten spies' voice, voices rose even louder, and the murmurings began to spread throughout the camp. And they decided instead of fighting that they would remain. And God said, as a result of this decision right here at kardesh Barnea, this entire generation, Moses, including you, are going to die in the wilderness, and you won't be able to enter in. And my servant Joshua, when the last person has died off from this generation, my servant Joshua will take up the reins of leadership and lead my people in to the promised land. And that's the context, so let's pick up again with Joshua chapter 1 verse 1, and after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, and now that we had the context, let's then look at the covenant that God initially made with Abraham and was bound and determined to keep because God will never break His word. He will never break His word. We can read in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 through 21. 500 years earlier, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, it's a spacious land, and the boundaries that are marked out for it are 330,000 square miles of land. It's a beautiful land, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, it's yours. Abraham had a son, Isaac, Isaac had a son. Jacob Jacob had a son, the 12 tribes of Israel. They had children. That is the nation of Israel. And all the way through this lineage as they began to multiply and a family became a people, God continued to remind the people over and over through their leadership, I made a covenant with Abraham. I made a covenant with Isaac. I made a covenant with Jacob. And I make promises, and I keep promises. I'm going to give my people the land. And now that that entire generation has died off, Joshua, you're my leader now, and you're going to lead my people into the promised land. Verse 2, the Lord says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all these people, into the land that I'm going to give them to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates, all the lands of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, it shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. God is a covenant-making God. God will never lie. He will never break a promise. Which is why when you pray the Word of God, you're praying the will of God, and when you pray the Word and the will of God, you know that what you're praying will become a reality. When you pray, you can actually cry out and your prayers can still crash. You can pray aimlessly, and that's when your prayers are devoid of focus. Focused prayers don't pray with faith. Focused prayers don't pray standing upon the promises of God, standing upon the Word of God. And you pray hoping it might be, wishing it might be God's will, but you're not really sure. But when you pray the Word of God, you're praying the will of God, and God is not like man that He can lie or break His promise. He's a covenant-making God, and He's a promise-keeping God. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. And when we pray, we can focus on His promises and cry out to Him, and we know that His Word will become a reality. His Word will become a reality. And this is the case. This is the source of Joshua's boldness. When all the other ten spies said, said we, we can't defeat them, Joshua said, but God's Word said that we will. They weren't, Joshua and Caleb weren't focused on their circumstances, they were, focused on God, they were focused on God's covenant, on God's promises. And if at any time in your life you are not standing upon a promise from God's Word, then you are not standing on a firm foundation. You're standing on quicksand. If at any time I say to you, what promise from God's Word are you standing on at this juncture, at this season of your life, you better, better be able to, to tell it to me in a second because you've been crying out to God and praying that and believing that, writing it down, looking through the promise of God's Word as your lenses rather than through the five senses of how your, your emotions relate to this world. What promise are you standing upon from God's Word? at this season, at this juncture in your life. Do you have it? Is there a blank in your mind right now? And you're on on a sandy foundation. Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. The floods came, it stood. But whoever hears these words... And doesn't do them, or even worse, believes them and doesn't do them, or doesn't hear them at all, is like somebody who builds their life on a sandy foundation. The storms are going to come. They will come and go, but the question is, are you standing upon a rock from God's Word, believing a promise for this juncture in your life? I don't mean like, like 40 years ago, like the Israelites were standing upon a promise, you know, to, to get out of Egypt. Are you standing upon a promise now for this blessing, for this season, for this juncture in your life? Is it a fresh word, a rhema word, a current word that's born out of your time with the Lord? And you say, well, can you give me a promise? No. You got to seek the face of God. And through the context of that personal relationship with the Lord, praying and fasting and reading the Word every day, I promise you the Holy Spirit will birth a promise from His Word into your heart. This stuff isn't just religion. This isn't just a bunch of stuff we're supposed to do and a bunch of stuff we're just not supposed to do. This is a relationship with the God who wants us to inherit the land, with the God who wants us to enter into His blessings, with the God who didn't just save us from our sins, but He saved us for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. But the storms are going to come every day, and you better have a promise from God's Word that you're going to stand upon, or your disposition will be like the ten spies rather than Joshua and Caleb's disposition. Because they were standing upon a word from God, they were worshiping, they were walking, they were serving in the community of worship, and they were walking with God, and their heart was alive and bubbling with God's promises. Which is why, when fear arose that contradicted the conviction in God's word to them, it was repulsive. It was unthinkable. It was absolutely ludicrous. And they said, What what are you saying? There's giants. God said, God can do this. We've seen God work, we've seen God move. He did it then, He'll do it again. God said this. And the thought of being fearful and timid and shrinking back and remaining comfortable rather than entering into our calling was unthinkable, because God said this. Do you have that kind of conviction in your heart because of your relationship with the Lord? And He's spoken a promise to you through His Word, which is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. It's alive. It will resuscitate your faith, it will resuscitate your heart. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God, I'm not talking about an hourly dose once a week at church or deeper. I'm talking about in your daily time with the Lord every single day. The, the Word is living and active and breathing. And if you're in the Word, as Luke said earlier, desperate for God, God will speak a promise into your heart. And as your five senses begin shouting fearful and thoughts as the enemy begins shouting, accusing thoughts, who are you to dream such a thing? Who are you to expect such blessings? Remember what you've done. Remember where you've been. Or when people start saying, who are you to think such a thing? Who are you to pray such large prayers? Who are you to expect such blessings in your life? I know who you are. I know who you've been. Those thoughts resound not as truth but as lies, and it's repulsive because it contradicts God's promises that are in your heart. But you've got to be in the Word every day to have such a promise that you're standing upon. What promise are you standing on? 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 You standing on? You've got to have a promise. I can't give it to you. It's, a, it's the reward of a treasure hunt. God's Word is an ocean filled with His promises, and you're its explorer. And every day seek the face of God, dive into the depths of His Word, do a daily relationship with Him. And in that context, you'll find a promise that will make your life rich with peace, joy, and love. And when you find it, don't leave it in the bottom of the ocean. Pull it up into your life to make your life rich and overflowing with peace, joy, and love. As you enter into your calling, and you do that by trusting that promise more than your five senses. You trust that promise more than your circumstances, and you obey. So, yeah, let's praise God. That's the context. And then we entered into this covenant that God made with Abraham. And now, there is a condition to experience this covenant. And so, let's read about this condition in verse 6. You know, you know that God is being emphatic when He presents Himself in one of two ways, or especially both ways. One, is when God is extremely simple, He's being very emphatic and very clear. Two, when God is very repetitive, He's being very emphatic. When God is very simple and very emphatic, He is shouting this truth to us. Such is the case with the condition to inherit the covenant. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. This is what God is saying to Joshua. He's emphatic. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Are you hearing a pattern? Being careful to do all that the law, that my, being careful to do according to all that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Guess what he says. Be strong and courageous three times. In a short conversation, God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. Thus, the name of this series as we walk through Joshua, Strong and courageous. And why shouldn't we be strong and courageous? God is with us and God is for us. We should be the most bold people in the world, but humble. We should be strong and courageous. This is the condition. But now that brings us to the crossroad. They're at the same border that the previous generation was when they decided that they didn't want to go in and fight. And we give them a hard time, but you know what? It's been hard to follow Moses' leadership. We read in the book of Genesis that Joseph had such favor in the sight of Pharaoh, that when Joseph brought his family into Egypt to live because of the famine in the land and they began multiplying, the Pharaoh gave Joseph and all of his family the very best of the land. And they began multiplying greatly, and it was only then that the Egyptians became intimidated by the Israelites and forced them into slavery. But they're used to living in the best of the land it's green, it's plush. And they forgot that the slaves, that the Egyptians beat their back with whips. They forgot that the Egyptians killed their firstborn sons. They forgot about that oppression. They forgot how cruel the taskmasters were. They just remembered that they lived in plush land and they had it easy and they never had to wonder what they were going to have for a meal. And then they entered into wilderness and it was like walking on Mars, man. It was brutal. When they left Egypt, the best of the plush of the land in Egypt, and they entered into the wilderness, it was harsh. And I'm not exaggerating when I say, it's like Mars. I've been there, and I've walked through this wilderness. And I say, yeah, for the first time in my life, I get why they were grumbling. I don't condone it. I don't agree with it. They were faithless, but I get it. Man, this place is miserable. How are a million people going to eat out here? I mean, you might see an occasional snake. How are a million people going to eat? Thus, God had to provide for them supernaturally through the manna. And on top of that, every day in following Moses' leadership, they had to eat this divine food manna. Now, Joseph Joseph was grateful. Joshua was grateful for it. But the Israelites grumbled about it. You know what manna means? It literally means, what is this? This is strange. That's what it means. So when they picked up manna that God fed them every day, it was kind of like honey. Honey. Not honey, but kind of like honey. They said, this is strange. They got sick of manna. They were walking in the wilderness. It was scorching. They couldn't plant crops. There wasn't enough water. It was weary. Every day they ate the manna mixed with the sand from the desert, and they were sick of it. And they kept reminiscing about what they were delivered from, the good old days, which were not good, but that's all they could think about, and they wanted to return to it. And now this leader is just bringing them up to the border and saying, now let's go fight. And they're like, fight? I could be killed. Fight. My husband could be killed. Fight. My son could be killed. Fight. How long is this battle going to take? How long is this war going to take? At least in the wilderness, as miserable as this is, at least we know what to expect. We don't know what to expect. We're slaves. We're not soldiers. They're soldiers. They've never been slaves. How are we going to fight? And so... They decided not to enter into the promised land, and every last one of them perished in the wilderness. And now Joshua and this new generation of Israelites is at the same place, the same crossroad, the same border. What are they going to do? Are they going to enter in, or are they going to follow in the footsteps of their faithless, grumbling forefathers? Now... This is the the takeaway of this sermon this morning. At this crossroad, they did enter in because under the leadership of Joshua, Joshua was determined to live a life that could only be explained supernaturally. Joshua was determined to live a life that could only be explained supernaturally. Whereas the generation before We're determined to live a life that can only be explained naturally. Which life are you living? Which life are you determined to live? Because every day we're at a crossroad and every day we have decisions to make. Let's follow in the footsteps of Joshua that inherit his blessings and be determined to live a life that can only be explained supernaturally because God is with us and God is for us. And the reason that we have joy is not natural, it's supernatural. The reason we pray is not natural, it's supernatural. The reason we expect God's blessings on our life is not natural, it's supernatural. God is with us, God is for us. Look at the contrast between the two. The natural life is timid and fearful. The supernatural life is bold and obedient. The natural life are very concerned with their problems. The supernatural life is very concerned with God's promises. The natural life deals with circumstances, deals with people, and deals with the world around us through our five senses. The supernatural life deals with circumstances and people in the world around us through faith. The natural life relies on our own ability, thus the motto, I can do it. And if I can't do it, then it can't be done. But the supernatural life relies on God's ability, thus the motto, I can do it because God can do it. Yes. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The natural life focuses on the giants that oppose them. The supernatural life focuses, focuses on the strength of the God who calls us to fight, thus The natural life is overwhelmed with fear. The supernatural life overcomes through faith. The natural life focuses on what we have to lose, but the supernatural life focuses on what we have to gain. Are you focused on the natural or the supernatural? Here at the border to the promised land, they made a decision to, unlike their generation preceding them, to focus on what God can do to live a life that can only be explained supernaturally this is the history of hope works we are only here today for supernatural reasons time and time again god has revealed his faithfulness to us and i promise you god is more real to me than this pulpit this will come and go this will be burned one day Oh, but God is more real to me than this, than you. He's more real to me than the back of our, my hand because God is faithful and he's proven himself time and time again. So let's read about the crossroad and they decided to enter in. Verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. Within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will go with you into this land? Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise." In other words, he's telling two and a half tribes, look, you've already got your land because you're deciding to settle here. Okay, that's fine. Moses said that was fine, but we're going in. We're taking this land. We're going to fight, but we need your, we need your help. So all of your fighting men, all of your mighty men of valor... Come with us, and when you help us fight so that the other tribes get their land, then you can come back and enjoy your land. No grumbling, no complaining, but they repeated what God said. They said, whatever you do, we'll do. As we followed Moses, we'll follow you. If anybody disrespects you, they'll be dead. And then they said, but this is the only thing we ask of you, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. So we looked at the context, the covenant that this promise-making God made. And then we looked at the condition to enter into this covenant, and that was that they are strong and courageous. And then we looked at the crossroad that they found themselves in, the same crossroad that we're faced with every day where we make a decision. Are we going to live naturally or supernaturally? How will our life be defined, a natural life or a supernatural life? Will, Will we walk by sight or will we walk by faith? And now... Let's close out by going to the New Testament, the book of Joshua's New New Testament counterpart, the book of Ephesians. Whereas the book of Joshua is about conquest, the book of Ephesians is about conquest. Whereas the book of Joshua is about going into battle, the book of Ephesians is about putting on the full armor of God, the spiritual armor, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the shoes that are fitted for the readiness of the gospel of peace and we suit up in the book of Ephesians every single day to go into battle to take possession of the land that's ours. And in Ephesians chapter 1 as throughout the entire book of Ephesians, we see the land that is ours to inherit every single day. We see the land that's flowing with milk and honey, the good land, the spacious land, the broad land, the blessed land that we are to walk in every single day. Moses' generation decide to be Wilderness wanderers, but Joshua and his de- generation decided to be promised dwellers, Canaanite, Canaan conquerors. And every day as we make a decision to live naturally or supernaturally, to walk by faith or to walk by sight, we will wander in the wilderness if we walk by sight, or we will enter into our possession in Christ as we walk by faith. Let's look at our promised land that we are to fight for as we put on the full armor of God and go into battle, we are to fight for and take hold of. It's ours already. Just like the promised land belonged to the Israelites, they had to go possess it, but it was theirs. They weren't fighting for victory, they were fighting from a position of victory. So like Joshua, they had every right to be bold and authoritative and joyful at what the battle would bring. And so it is with us. Every morning we, we wake up, we have a battle to fight. And we put on the full armor of God and enter into the battle and take possession of what has been promised to us through the new covenant in Christ. On the eve of Christ's crucifixion, He said, I bring you a new covenant. There's a the passing of the baton from the Old Testament Passover to the New Testament Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. I am entering into you a new covenant. And just like the Israelites, were not just saved from Egypt, we're saved for a promised land. In Christ and the new covenant, we're not just saved from sin and death and the penalty of the law and separation from God. We are saved for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And that's what Ephesians is about. So to get the most... Out of Joshua, I encourage you to go to deeper at 6 as they are walking through the New Testament counterpart of Joshua, Ephesians. But let's look at the spiritual blessings in Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It's our land. It's our possession. But we've got to battle every day to walk into it and to enjoy it even as He chose us. The first blessing that we're going to walk through in Ephesians right here is that He's chosen us. He loves you. He chose you. God wants you, and every day you're going to have accusations that God doesn't love you. He didn't choose you, but He did choose you. Let's walk in that truth. He chose you to be holy and blameless. God doesn't look at you for where you've been. God doesn't look at you for how others see you or how you see yourself when you look in the mirror or what you've done even yesterday or this morning. He looks at you according to His righteousness that He's clothed you with. You are chosen. You are holy and blameless before Him in love. God loves you. This has to be the core conviction of our life. The lenses through which we interpret every event that touches our life. This is so much more than a concept in our mind, this is the core conviction upon our heart, fueling our faith, fueling our joy, fueling our boldness. You are loved by God. It's an eternal love, it's an infinite love, it's an unconditional love. It's a love that can never be exhausted, it's a love that will never give out, it will never walk away. You are loved by God. And you're his son and daughter. We read in verse 5. He loves you. You were righteous. You were chosen. You were his son. You were his daughter. How did God treat you when you were dead in your sins? How did God treat you when you were eternally separated from him and living with enmity and hostility toward God? How did he treat you? Did he throw a lightning bolt at you? He went to the cross for you. He paid for your sins on the cross. He loved you with the highest price possible. Now that you're his son, now that you're his daughter, chosen and loved and accepted and blameless, how will, as the writer of Romans chapter 8 told us, now not give us freely everything? And he's given you his glorious grace, not just enough. But all that you can handle, and then even more, it lavishes its grace upon grace upon grace overflowing. He's given you redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. He makes known to you the mystery of His will. Are you confused? You don't know which way to go? Do you need wisdom that's greater than your present experience? You have all of His will at your disposal. It's the promised land. Walk into it. Pray for wisdom. Expect God to give you that wisdom. You have an inheritance. You are heaven bound. You have the word of truth. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You have within you, for you, guiding you, leading you, comforting you, reminding you, the Holy Spirit, the same power that created the universe— the same power that raised Christ up from the grave. And you were sealed by this Holy Spirit, and you've been given a guarantee in heaven. You are guaranteed heaven if you're a Christian. It's not like, gosh, you know, when I die, hope I'm there. If you're in Christ, you're there already, and you're just waiting to depart this body so you can be face to face with the one who loves you and gave himself up for you. You have glorious inheritance in the saints. You have anointing, you have authority, you have boldness, you have power, you have the answer to your prayers, you have an audience with the God who created all things, who loves you, who fills all things, who has all authority and power. You have power over oppression, power over addiction, power over demons, you have favor. This is your inheritance. And yet so many Christians today live like the generation that perished in the wilderness. Wilderness wanderers, grumbling, complaining, reminiscing about the days, the good old days. Thinking about times when God demonstrated His power in their life. Wished He would do it now. The promised land is yours. You can enter into it. Would you stand with me, please? Cassidy, come on up. I asked Cassidy to, Cassidy to, uh, to sing this song over you. You probably know it. Just worship Praise God. It's called oceans. Because here's the thing. To enter into the promised land, to enter into the promised land, you've got to walk by faith. God is calling you. Believe Him for the impossible. Believe Him for the supernatural. Live a life that can only be explained supernaturally by believing the promises of God for your life. Let me pray for you. Father... In Jesus' name, I pray that not one wilderness wanderer would leave this place, but only Canaan conquerors, promised dwellers. So we walk by faith and not by sight.